Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Right Moves Podcast, where we talk about how to develop happy, healthy, resilient children into happy, healthy, resilient adults. I'm your host, Dr. Debbie Ray. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Right Moves Podcast. I'm so excited to have Dr. John Medina, the number one best-selling author of Brain Rules, back with us today to pick his brain some more. <laughs> yeah, just a play on words. In the last episode, Dr. Medina and I discussed the big three of memory, sleep habits, unstructured outdoor play and physical activity, and nutrition. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the last episode about the big three, it's definitely worth the listen. Today, Dr. Medina is with me again to further discuss ways we sabotage our health. One of the most significant silent killers of our health that also impacts memory and overall brain function is distress. Good stress, called eustress, is needed, but when distress creeps in long-term or chronically, damage to memory is possible. Link has been studying distress in children with hair cortisol because hair can assess chronic stress, where other forms of cortisol tests like saliva assess acute stress. Listen in as, as we start the episode about Link's study and then move into further discussion about child and adult's distress and what to do about it. Yeah, so uh, with what you've been talking about with some of our research with Link, um, we are doing hair cortisol tests. And when you related it to stress and anxiety and things, we're able to do this hair cortisol test in the schools. We have their four unstructured play breaks a day. They're, they're not starting before school with the first one. They're starting uh, after 45 to 50 minutes of content time. We're trying to reboot that brain every 45 to 60 minutes to really keep them in a movement relationship so that the brain can tick at its best. Um, and I'll ask you about that in a minute. But anyway, uh, the before school, we're hoping they're getting some movement time in. Right. But we're able to capture them while they're out in the schools with these breaks throughout the day. But it also captures up to three months of stress. Hmm. So it's an average of what the hair can um, produce. Mm -hmm. But three centimeters is the equivalent of three months. For every centimeter that it grows, that's how much average you would get over the three months. So it's interesting if we assess it in November, so they, we'd get August when they first start school to November before Thanksgiving, what does that look like? Right. And right now we're assessing if they started in February through star test or through whatever the standardized tests for third graders up, uh-huh. uh, what is that showing for stress? Yeah. And the the hair cortisol is is showing some interesting things. When we came back from COVID, everybody was complaining about how aggressive kids were, how stressed and anxious they were. And our kids with Link are showing less stress than prior to COVID with the same age group. So it's interesting to see that as long as they're getting that physical activity, it's, it's great for the kids. It's bringing their stress and anxiety levels down in routines in a school setting. Sure. But what's interesting is we've also looked at obesity rates of our kids. And we're not looking at nutrition specifically, uh-huh. but with the, the physical activity portion, they're getting 60 minutes of activity a day, right? Uh-huh. But they're actually getting 123 minutes with an accelerometer of time being active throughout that day. 
Interestingly, the obesity rate. So if we looked at um, underweight, uh-huh. healthy weight, overweight, obese, uh-huh. our obese group is not changing off that whatever that percentage is let's say they're at 30 percent uh body fat percentage okay they're not changing off a 30 percent there's they're staying right on the 30 percent so we're not they're not gaining more weight or body fat but they're not losing body fat yeah whereas our overweight kids without changing nutrition are actually moving towards the healthy weight Mm -hmm. sure so we really understand and we've written about nutrition is such an interesting and, and dynamic component for this, right? Physical activity, sleep, and the nutrition are all very important. I've often thought that if you combined uh, a, a physical exercise component, particularly if you're looking at cortisol, and this you could do salivary cortisol too if you want to just get sure. a, uh, an hour spike. Um, I've been deeply impressed with a very particular style of mindfulness training and its ability to change anxiety in the people that undergo it. It's John Kabat-Zinn's. There's a ton of flavor of the month of mindfulness out there. So you sort of have to be careful, but the stuff that's in the peer review is John Kabat-Zinn's eight week protocol, for example, is really strong and it changes anxiety. And we know that if you change anxiety that can change people's relationship with food. And it would be fascinating to see that in those obese populations, would if you gave them mindfulness training, would that tip the scales if they are all of a sudden are if, the, if you add then the nutrition and the exercise component, would that be enough to bust them through to see? Because the, the whole idea behind creating mental states that allow your physiology to reset back to what you were born with, um, kind of an important thing. Yeah, I, I love that you're saying that. We're actually using some mindfulness when kids come back from transitions uh-huh. into the classroom, uh-huh. especially the young ones, to get them set again. Yeah, yeah. To a routine to come back, right? Yeah. But they're even finding the children are finding among themselves that they can start resetting themselves because they they think, oh, this helped me here, this will help right. me again, right? It's yeah. it's awesome, awesome to see how the brain really transitions around what it learns. You know. You know, I have personal experience with this. With uh, uh, I'm. I do mindfulness myself. I went through the eight week course to get it. And so I'm driving to uh, my office over in bioengineering uh, medical school at the University of Washington. And uh, uh, often when I get there, there's other undergraduates coming through and they're not great drivers a lot. Seattle's got a lot of rain, so the slip and slide. So I usually have colorful epithets <laughs> when some kid cuts me off and I almost run into him kind of thing. But uh, about two weeks after I'd finished the eight week stuff, to, to your point, Deb, the, uh, I started, uh, one of the things that John Kabat-Zinn, for some reason, or at least the training I was looking at, loves you to start focusing on raisins. So it asks you to just, before you even do body scans and all this other stuff, just take a look at a raisin for five minutes and see what you can see. Drove me nuts when I first started. <laughs> <laughs> what, did you, what does it do over five minutes? Does it change into some large blob or what, you know, what does yeah. it do? Well, I thought, you know, I start thinking, well, what grant am I, you know, what, what, I mean, there's a ton of things. <laughs> um, what it, what it does though, it makes you change because I, I can see why he used a raisin actually now to, in a light source, because there's so many reflective surfaces on it that it allows you to pay attention to different things. If you get bored easily and still, and still get the benefits of focus, cause you need to focus. 
And so a raisin or something like that turned out to be a pretty good thing. I, I see why he uses it. But here's what happened. I'm driving this to work, and of course it's raining because it's Seattle. And of course some undergraduate comes, and it's just going to cut off the old professor. And instead of me give, uh, going to my default colorful epithets that I might give this kid, instead I saw a big picture of a raisin. <laughs> And I could, oh. and it kicked in the breathing exercises that you do with mindfulness, and it starts to send you that. And I thought, man, a lot. That's called a far transfer effect. That has real far transfer effect, and it does, and that's measurable. That's in every yeah. population that's done it, uh, it can change them. And so I've become, I could almost want to call it the big four. You know, you want your sleep, you want your exercise, you want your nutrition, but maybe you also want to calm down. It would be one of the ways when to uh, take a generation away from their cell phones for a while. When you Absolutely. have to focus for 30 minutes on something and just and, and yeah. uh, just allow mindfulness and get the breathing exercises in and maybe reduce the anxiety as a result. So. I would agree with that. I, I feel it's very important for us to introduce it to teachers uh-huh. yeah. so that they can bring their stress levels down. Being outside is such a key component mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. bringing our, our stress levels down. Sure. Uh, being able to be in a space where we're not having to do dual and triple types of mind thinking at the same time. You know, what's this kid doing over here while I'm trying to think here while somebody else is calling me at the door while there's an airplane going over. I mean, you know, all these things can be going on and it, it can, you normalize it. We typically normalize it. In reality, we're stressed, right? Well, what, one of the things that it can do that is uh, particularly for people that have large responsibilities, it's the rumination cycle at night. One of the things we know about rumination is that at night, it's much easier to, to, be, to concentrate on the things that bug you because you don't have a lot of sensory, extra sensory experiences that could interfere with it or interrupt you in such fashion that you couldn't worry for it for a while. So now you can focus on it. And one of the things that mindfulness can do is it can march you right in there and say, we're going to replace your worries about your bank account with a raisin. <laughs> we're going to yes. replace your worries about your teenage daughter with a raisin and allow the mental health of that to have its full um, empirically based effect. I think mindfulness training should be in, incorporated into the classroom the same way that math is incorporated to have it be just as mandatory and just as important. You know, when you say that, I, I totally agree. I'm wondering, do we need to also make sure that we're integrating breaks outside for kids to be able to run and play just as we do the meditational piece Mm -hmm. as part of just like math and science we need that as considered a content time right where they if we want to consider it that way where they get outside and they just get everything out of the system where they can really feel it what do you believe about that well i'm a deep believer in balances between what i like to call the tools of the mind findings deborah leong's great work and unstructured play. I'm a deep believer in unstructured play. I think it allows for greater language flexibility. You give a child a sense of agency, particularly if the adults can be removed a little bit. The adults may need still need to supervise, but they should be far enough away that it doesn't feel like the kid's being hovered over so that they have You're their own sense my of language. agency. Yeah, well, yeah. That, for sure. Well, we both are looking at the same literature too. I mean, yeah. that, just, that just helps. If you can do it outdoors, if it's green, particularly, oddly enough, 523 nanometers seems to be particularly powerful. Uh, you can actually change ADHD uh, behaviors, whatever ADHD turns out to be. Being in the outdoors would be, in fact, it's so powerful at the University of Kyoto, they call it something. They call it forest bathing. 
Yes. I've, <laughs> right? I've read about it and I've heard about it. Yes. Oh, it's wonderful stuff. But there's also a pediatric form of this. It doesn't. It started out looking mostly with forest bathing and older populations, but they eventually mm -hmm. percolated it down to the 40-year-olds and 30-year-olds, and finally they did a whole pediatric unit. The exact same thing is achieved, and it's, you can actually boost it if you're walking around in a green forest if you can have water events, oddly enough, associated with yes. it. Yes. Particularly falling water so that there's you know, waterfalls and lakes and things like that. That's, that's the optimum. That, though, has to be balanced. Deborah uh, Leong's great work with Tools of the Mind program showed that uh, unstructured play is you get the biggest bang for the buck if you start out with just a little bit of structure and allow an executive function to occur. So for her for her uh, experiments, she's the only one that to this day, which can take a bunch of six year olds and do a pre post, randomize it and whatnot. Uh, this is what she does. She creates this um, uh, and anybody can if fill your basement. Uh, with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory forms of fun. You know, there's slides and there's balls and there's uh, places where you could do dress up and all the things all of us, would, you know, when we go into rooms like that, we all turn into kids. Yeah, let's go play around with it for a little while. She allows him to see that. But then she says this, before you're allowed to go in there, I'm going to give you a clipboard. Six-year-old, for those who can actually write. And she asks them just to write down a few things that they're likely to do when they get there. So that, you know, they see the fire person's hat, they want to be uh, play fire engine for a little while, they'll write that down and we'll play that for a bit. She found that if you could create a light bit of organization, because kids don't nat naturally self-organize, unrestricted play without any form of boundary at all isn't as helpful as a tiny little whiff of, uh, of organization, followed by, okay, kids, now go have a good time. So they go out and they get started on it. And all of a sudden, they have both um, a great sense of joy and their executive function is beginning to come online. So there's a balance, I think, somewhere. I, I'm a deep believer in the word unstructured. I love that. Yeah, I'm also a deep believer in the word structure. The both, it seems like the brain needs to have both depending upon the age. Yeah. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, uh, I have, I've done some of this type of work more uh -huh. anecdotally, uh -huh. but asking kids, what do you do at recess one? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and they'll yeah. say, "This is my tar This is what I do in recess one. So and so and so and so go with. We work on such and such recess yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, what do you yeah. do in recess two? Oh, we don't do that anymore. We're over here doing blah 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 blah. Yeah, recess yeah. three is something different. Recess four is something entirely different, which sure. brings that kind of structure to what they do and how they do it. And yeah. they'll be the first to tell you if yeah. I don't have my four recesses, I'm not happy." You know, they'll, they'll tell you, I, sure. I've got to have that, which is oh, really yeah. good. Oh, I can oh, just see gosh. their brains just hungering for it. You know, I know. Deborah also, also has a, uh, she'll do a wrap up at the end of the week where they break out their clipboards and write down everything that they had done. Same idea where they're doing uh, and getting new yeah. ideas to do new things. Yeah. Sure. That reflection is so, so important, right? It yeah. helps you put your brain around. What did I really do? What, yeah. what was my purpose this morning? And I think it's, it brings purpose to what we mm -hmm. do. I totally agree that structure is also important. We've got to have routines. Yep. We're, we're, we're habit type people, right? Our behaviors feel more comfortable when we have routines in our lives. But at the same time, we have to be okay with, oh, this didn't go exactly how I wanted it to. Let's yeah. adapt. Yeah. But, you know. I've often felt that uh, human learning optimally is a lot like a jazz musician, a real jazz musician. A jazz musician who knows their theory. I, I, uh, I, I'm an admirer of 
uh, Pat Metheny, for example, who used to, who has taught yes. occasionally uh, music theory at the university levels. Uh, he says he will teach everybody a circle of fifths and he wants them to know it. He wants them to know some of that theory, that structure. They make better improvisers, he says, because improvisation in jazz is the key. You want to be yes, able to be yes. unstructured. You want to be able to, to riff off of somebody else and do things. And I see human learning a lot like that. You need a certain amount of structure. That's for sure. In fact, you need to have a certain database that's memorized. But you're doing it so that you can do the unstructured stuff, so that you can push a field forward, so that you can be creative, so that you can celebrate and maximize the unstructured components that allows your structure to have its full say. So I sort of think of it. Uh, I, I often think of Pat Metheny when I think of uh, the ar archetypal education system. Absolutely. I, I'm in the same, you know, you and I are in the same camp, uh, uh -huh. but I so appreciate the way that you put it out there. It, jazz definitely has that impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you've had I some music background, off, right? Did, did you, you I know. Some, music yeah, is yeah. my background. I'm a, a classical pianist by young age, but uh -huh. now I just, I play for fun now. So it's, sure. I've got my baby grand piano and it sits in the front window so I can see out and see nature, even though I'm there, which was not the way when I was going through college. But um, music, I think is also important. Music is a way of being able to identify and, you know, see um, different ways of reacting to things by what music does. I mean, it's, there's some stress markers there too, if you get into <laughs> high impact music, right? Uh, I wanted to break off into one more area here, and it's, uh, it has to do with chronic disease and how the, the brain body connection that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. how does that impact chronic disease? And, and you touched on it with the Mediterranean diet, right? Sure. But I think with the big three and probably the big four, if we added meditation to it or a mindfulness oh, to it, sure. Uh, sure. what would it look like in your estimation if children were able to really focus around the big four? Uh -huh. yeah. What would that look like with chronic disease as we roll through versus where we are right now with just a hodgepodge of things? And trying to get back to nor you know what would be a, a normal, healthy way of living. Sure. How would sure. that? How is that making things different for us? Well, there's an interesting. You know, I wrote this book, Brain Rules for Aging. It's one of the in the Brain Rules series, talking about how the brain ages. Um, and I love that book, by the way. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah. It was both sad and wonderful to write. The uh, yeah. uh, sad in the sense of. Uh, well, let's 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 start with the sad and then go to the wonderful. <laughs> because that, that's a good way question, to do it. End on the good, yeah. Uh, right, right with you there. <laughs> that's the only way to live, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, we'll start with the sad. One of the things in writing that book uh, that I would see uh, and see how mature this research has developed is the hideous effects of loneliness on bodily function. You can, there are changes that occur with, when you become lonely, and by that, I mean, you're now socially isolated. You don't see lots of people. You don't do lots of things. You are, you're tending to retract. Sometimes anxiety and depression is involved. Old age-related depression is involved. Um, when you become lonely, your systemic inflammation throughout the body rises. And that's a predictor for cardiovascular problems. You have all kinds of things that occur, with, particularly with a, a chemical called interleukin-6. Some of the cytokines, that begins to overdevelop in the vasculature and as a result aids and abets systemic inflammation they have people that are lonely that are socially isolated and yes there's a loneliness key 
It was actually developed in UCLA, to a psychometric test to, uh, to develop this. At a certain point, your body begins to look a lot like you've been smoking two packs a day, even if you were a non-smoker. That's the effects, powerful negative effects of loneliness. So one of the things you can ask to ask now to address your question, what can you do when you're younger? If you did the big four when you're younger, one of the most powerful influences of the big four is that you have more friends. If you have strong executive function and you can control particularly like your emotional regulation, you're not as moody. People love being around you <laughs> and you have lots of friends. When you have strong executive function and can focus, you tend to earn more. You tend to have more su successful relationships. And yeah, there's an economic component to marriage. I mean, there's all kinds of things that can occur that allows you to keep your friendships your close friendships and even your far friendships much more stable, such that by the time you are older, if you've been practicing the big four, my guess is your interleukin six levels have just gone way, way down and you're no longer, you don't have a vasculature that looks like you smoke two packs a day uh, of cigarettes, instead are doing something. But it's because you developed a lifestyle early that allowed you to buffer against that uh, once you begin to get older. And as a result, you don't get lonely. There you go. So the point is, change your executive function when you're young. How do you change executive function? Well, let's see. What did we talk about? Sleep, exercise, <laughs> nutrition, mindfulness, <laughs> all the things that allow that to come up. You know, it's, it seems like it seems repetitive in some ways, but it's amazing to me, Deb, that I can yeah. say all that and I'm standing right on the mountain of peer review. That's not an opinion. This is just the way our or, this brain works. And that's an extremely important thing to understand that these aren't suggestions. These are data. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, when I think about Alzheimer's uh -huh. or any type of dementia, yeah. but especially Alzheimer's because there's what's called an early onset mm -hmm. and then there's kind of the typical, right? Mm -hmm. And when you think about a disease like this, which I've had, uh, not me, but my family has deep rooted Alzheimer's in it. Mm. And I think, I think about that and how I, my grandmother had early onset, uh -huh. but early onset back 30 years ago was late seventies. Uh -huh. hmm. Early onset today seems to be in the sixties or even late fifties. I have explained this when I go out into schools that when we're not allowing the brain to really manufacture what I call the neurological highways that need to happen, all those neurological functions um, in the prefrontal cortex and other, other pieces, when those things don't happen, as we grow older, and we don't have those four things with us, right? The physical activity, nutrition, uh, sleep, and so forth, and mindfulness. Yeah. It could produce these early onset types of diseases. Would you agree with that? Or do you think, no, it's just luck of the draw? No, I would, I would only say that I think it may be too early to say that. Yeah. And by that, I mean... Um, if you take a look carefully at the Alzheimer's literature, particularly in the it's called molecule land, you become quickly disabused that there's one disease that you're looking at. There are right. Alzheimer's diseases. Right. Some of them are at early onset for this is in your 40s. There is a family in Colombia that's being studied 
and is weak. They all have early onset Alzheimer's, and that is a genetic component. It's a deep, strong genetic component, and they're all showing primary symptoms of Alzheimer's in their 40s and 50s. Um, wow. So there is, the reason why I say that is that there is a genetic component to that which we do not yet understand. There is some suggestion that some of those genes begin to accrete the bad guys in your brain early, like when you're 18 or 19, but it will take you 30 years for them to have a sufficient concentration that it flips you over into a behavior that you can actually see as a dementia. So that may be one type of Alzheimer's, but there's another type of Alzheimer's that might be out there too with different genes. There's presenilin one, presenilin two, there's APOE4. There's a ton of those that have a genetic component and there are also environmental contributions to Alzheimer's. So now we have another set of diseases to think of. So uh, it's very clear that the Mediterranean diet, one of its greatest benefits, now that these longitudinals have been done, you know, long enough to see, reduces your risk for Alzheimer's. Folks, that's not a gene. That's an environmental thing to say. <laughs> that is something you can change, right? Yeah. Something you can change. So for the yeah. things that are modifiable, while we're trying to figure out the things that are not modifiable, if you have certain Alzheimer's genes, you have a gene and you have a risk factor that's associated with it. And we just have to live with that. But the very fact that there are modifiable uh, uh, things that you can do, nutrition is probably the biggest of those. I would argue that exercise comes in a close second, that those yeah. two. Mindfulness, I've not seen anything yet with, and sleep, I've not, I've seen a little bit that uh, if you get less sleep, you're at greater risk for the, I'll just say the dementia, so FTD, frontal temporal dementia, or uh, undifferentiated dementias or Alzheimer's, uh, probably all that. But the two that are, that are out there is something you can do about right now. So, Deb, I'd say continue preaching. <laughs> it's okay, I'm going to continue preaching, especially the environmental factors, right? Yeah, get, uh, get yeah. That you don't know in the roll of the dice which gene ultimately you have unless... You know, you want to That's go get true. a genetic engineering test. So, but there's, so, because there's something you, it's so serious if you get it, there is so something you can do about it. Why the heck don't we all do this? I well, don't know. You know, I know. Well, because our human behavior, our, our brains try to tell us in one thing over here, well, we enjoy this so much. Yeah. Surely it's not going to happen to me. Sure. You know? It's not happening right now. So surely in the future, it won't happen to me. And then it does. And then we're shocked. Now, what do we do? Right. Yeah. Uh, but I'm amazed when people don't change behaviors after they find out they do have cancer or they do have yeah. uh, some type of heart disease and they're told change yeah. your diet yeah. Yeah. for for real, for good. Right. And and doing something like the Mediterranean or you got to start being active again. You, you got to get out there. I yeah. think part of the problem is is goal setting is uh, being tempered in what you do, making sure that you set those things up. Being disciplined, I guess, is the word for it. Mm -hmm. sure. Sometimes we just don't want to be disciplined enough, right? Well, um, nobody likes to be told what to do, particularly if you come from. This I know. <laughs> particularly you're the right. state you're in, Deb. I know. <laughs> don't tell me what to do. Hallmark. I know. That's something I admire most of the time, but in this. You know, if you ignore data, like I say, if those things are not opinions, what in the world are you doing not following it? It's there's no exactly. agenda with this stuff. It's just it's a little bit like saying I don't want the my the color of my blood to be red. Well, good luck yeah. because the blood is red. It's just gonna, exactly. it's just gonna be that way. And your body, brain. Maybe works you belong on Mars, right? Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Why we stay stuck in the world? That's for sure. Um, well, John, I know we're we're about out of time here, and I I really have enjoyed these conversations. I hope I can have you on again sometime to oh, talk absolutely. about some other things. That would be awesome. I'd be um, delighted to come, Deb. We seem oh, to be, be seeing, seeing the same literature, uh, and I'm I'm always happy to to be a part of that. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to add before we leave today? Um. Only in the sense that I would appeal to those people that still want to stay with mythologies to give science a real shot, to allow the types of things people bust their butts for years trying to get one tiny little kernel of data. And once it's there, it's immutable and it's there forever. Um, mm -hmm. So being able to give a real live evidence based uh, data a shot and even push it up against your uh, prejudices and let your prejudices fall as a direct result of knowing what truth with a small t, but realize uh, that that type of truth can be a really big thing. I would encourage everybody to do. So maybe I could leave with that. You'd expect it for heaven's sakes. I'm a scientist. That's what I do. I know. Uh, so. But you know what? <laughs> I totally agree with you. I mean, we have evidence-based practice right now yeah. with the link project right now. There you go. 10 years worth. Yeah. And still people have, they just go, well, I just don't know if it'll work in my school. I don't yeah. know if it'll work with these teachers. I don't know if yeah. it'll work with this system. Yeah. yeah, It does, right? It is across the board. And so I appreciate you saying that because yeah. we've worked really hard. Yes, just you do. You have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. got to break these myths. Yeah. Sounds good um, to me, Dad. Let's be a part of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much, John, for being on today. I really appreciate you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Deb. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah. And as always, take care, have a great week, and play often. This podcast was brought to you by the Link Center for Healthy Play at Texas Christian University. To learn more about the Link Center and the resources mentioned in today's episode, visit our website at www. L-I-I-N-K project dot tcu dot edu.